The following podcast is gonna contain spoilers along with unfettered feelings of nostalgia. Proceed at your own risk. folks beat the drum and suck your thumb it's time for event or else the podcast where i go through most every major marvel and dc event one issue at a time one episode at a time because i mean i just want somebody to pay attention to me i'm your host my name is steven and we are back finally to immerse ourselves in dc's first big crossover event crisis on infinite earths and today we're going to look at issue number nine, which is entitled War Zone. This issue was published by DC Comics with a cover date of December 1985, but it hit the shelves on August the 29th. It was written by Marv Wolfman, pencils by George Perez, inks by Jerry Ordway, the letters were by John Costanza, and the colorist was Anthony Tallon. The issue opens on Oa, the home of the Green Lantern Corps and their little blue overlords, the Guardians of the Universe. The Guardians are preparing to restore order to, well, everything. But first, they need to beef up the Corps just a little bit. And so they have recruited one-time Green Lantern hopeful, Guy Gardner. Guy accepts the ring and vows to get out there and start cracking skulls. Before he can so much as throw a little green light around, the Citadel explodes around them, killing everyone but Guy and a lone guardian. The surviving guardian demands that Gardner avenge the deaths of his fallen blue pals, and Guy swears to destroy all evil and then flies off on his mission of vengeance. Meanwhile, a great big bunch of supervillains have gathered aboard Brainiac's spaceship, which is orbiting high above Earth-1. Brainiac announces to the Assembly that he can no longer detect the presence of their foe in either his universe or ours, meaning that the Anti-Monitor has either fled or died. Regardless, Brainiac pronounces the crisis over. Of course, there's still the matter of the multiple Earths just sitting there all merged and stuff. And since villains gotta be villains, Brainiac figures that now would be a good time for them to strike as a combined force with Lex Luthor of Earth-1 as their field commander. The Luthor of Earth-2, however, is none too pleased with this turn of events, figuring that his intellect is far superior to his counterpart from Earth-1. And so he steps forward to air his grievances. Brainiac takes the time to listen to everything the Luther of Earth 2 has to say. He asks a few probing questions to make sure he fully understands Luther's issue, and then he promises to look into it and that he will get back to the man. Nah, in truth, Brainiac just fries the Luther of Earth 2 right there on the spot. With that particular Luther out of the way, Lex of Earth 1 takes the stage before the story then takes us away from that gathering of evil to a Tamaranian ship orbiting high above the other side of Earth-1. Inside, Starfire and her lover Nightwing, along with the man with the best mutton chops in all of the DC Universe, yeah, talking about Jericho, they're beamed aboard 
before being whisked away to Tamarin for reasons only those reading the Teen Titans would know. And since I'm not reading Teen Titans, I certainly do not know. Meanwhile, hundreds of citizens gather at the Warp Zone, the place where each of the five remaining Earths touch the other, a place where time has just gone all kinds of crazy. You know, the kind of place hundreds of scientists would love to party. Above, Wonder Girl and the Teen Titans are hanging out on a rooftop overlooking the chaos below. Wonder Girl is worried for her husband, who is somewhere within the warp zone. Luckily, Cyborg arrives with a free ticket in, and Firehawk offers to accompany her. Meanwhile, leaders from all five of the remaining Earths have assembled at the United Nations on Earth-1 to hear Alexander Luther, the one-time harbinger Lila, and Pariah speak about their situation. Pariah assures those in attendance that for now, there appears to be nothing more to worry about. He feels confident in that assessment, considering that if there were anything to worry about, he'd be involuntarily pulled away, disappearing in a flash of green light, which has always been a sure sign that something bad was about to happen. And yet, he's not been called away, so everything is super cool. High fives all around. It's at that moment that Pariah is involuntarily pulled away, screaming that the danger has not yet ended as he disappears in a flash of green light. Before anyone can react, a holographic projection of Brainiac's robotic skull appears above them to announce that he has gathered together most every single supervillain from the five remaining Earths. And as the heroes have all assembled here on Earth-1, his forces have taken over Earth's four X and S. But of course, villains gotta be villains. So three Earths just won't do. They want all five under their control. With that in mind, Brainiac impresses upon those in attendance to listen to the man who is about to take center stage. Suddenly, resplendent in his green battle armor, looking very much like the evil mastermind that he is, Lex Luthor takes center stage and proceeds to tell the world leaders how it is. They have 15 minutes to surrender Earths 1 and 2. If not, the other three Earths will be destroyed. And of course, all five Earths being linked as they are, you destroy three of them, the other two are going to fall as well. The heroes then leap, fly, and swim into action, but try as they might, they cannot break through the barrier that separates the merging Earths. Magic, science, not even brute force can get them through. Meanwhile, Jay Garrick, along with Lila, visits Wally West in his home, where he's just hanging out in his underpants. The two convince Wally, also known as Kid Flash, that with Barry missing, Wally is the only one left who can help them with their plan. By the way, did I mention Jay and Lila have a plan? Here's what they do. They rebuild the cosmic treadmill and use it to get themselves and the combined might of the gathered heroes through the barrier and they take the fight to the villains. And fight they do. All across five Earths, the battle rages as both heroes and villains fall. On Earth-S, which has been covered in ice, Plasmus struggles to melt steel. 
But then Vibe steps in and uses his quake powers to pull Plasmus into the ground, saving Steel just long enough for the villain Warp to work his mojo and teleport Steel to a place from which the villain claims Steel will never return. Eclipso takes out Wonder Woman as Captain Cold and other icy villains freeze Aquaman and Mira. In the meantime, the Joker and Poison Ivy capture Freedom Force, and Dr. Phosphorus appears to burn the Hawkman from Earth 2 into a lifeless crisp. It's death and destruction across all five Earths. What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. In the meantime, Luther and Brainiac coordinate the battle from the safety of Brainiac's ship. Neither are worried about which way the battle might go. In fact, they both rather hope that the heroes and villains destroy each other so that the two of them can just swoop in and take over with a little effort. Luther even goes as far as admitting that he's rather keen on just destroying all five Earths and getting it done with. Then he and Brainiac can go off and take over some other planet. Suddenly, Brainiac explodes into a million tiny pieces, throwing Luther to the floor. And as Luther pulls himself to his feet, bits of Brainiac all about him, he finds himself facing Simon, the one villain who, it seems, decided not to go off with the others and fight. Well, Luther, I killed Brainiac, Simon says, hoping that no one notices how incredibly ridiculous he looks. So now Simon says Luther must die as well. And with that childish pun that quickly took what was meant to be a very scary moment and cut it off at the knees, we come to the end of another issue, which means it's time for the top three things to dwell on. The top three things to dwell on are three moments or characters in the book that I feel need to be given just a bit more thought. Funny, stupid, heartwarming or sad, it just really doesn't matter because I'm talking about it anyway. Thing to dwell on number three, I know nothing about Guy Gardner before his appearance in the Legends event from 1986. So Guy Gardner was created by John Broom and Gil Kane in Green Lantern number 59. And frankly, I am quite amazed after I did some research about who Guy Gardner was pre-crisis. Let me let me fill you in. Here's a little backstory. Here's 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 guys historical information. Guy Gardner, born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, grew up in an abusive home. His father, an alcoholic, beat up on Guy almost every day, while at the same time, his dad shined all of his love and attention on Guy's older brother, Mace. Guy finds refuge in General Glory comic books. His only way to escape 
if even for the amount of time it takes to read a single issue. By the time he reaches adolescence, Guy has become a juvenile delinquent. It's only when Big Brother Mace steps in and takes the boy under his wing that Guy turns his life around, attending the University of Michigan and becoming a collegiate football star until he's injured, ending a promising career in professional football. Gardner graduates with a bachelor's degree in education and psychology and works for a time as a social welfare caseworker, working primarily with rehabilitating prison inmates until walking away in fear that the career might free the aggressive side of himself that he's kept bottled away. He eventually meets a man named Hal Jordan and strikes up a friendship. So <laughs> this is all just information that has blown my head completely off my body. I am very much used to the guy Gardner who is post-crisis, and we're going to talk about him in just a moment here. But first, let's talk a bit about Guy's first appearance. It happened in Green Lantern number 59, which hit the stands on January 11th, 1968. It was written by John Broom, penciled by Gil Kane, and inked by Sid Green. And in this issue, apparently, I haven't read it. I just went out and found some information on it. But apparently, Hal Jordan somehow manages to look back in time to see Abin Sur's death. Now, Abin Sur, if you're not aware, is the alien that crash landed on Earth. He was a member of the Green Lantern Corps. And before he died, he gave his ring to Hal Jordan to, to carry on the fight, basically. But what we learn here in this issue, apparently, is that the ring actually located two men, two men that were both worthy to get this ring. The only reason Hal Jordan got it was because he was closest to the crash site. That's the only reason he got it. Guy at the time was brave and he was honest and the ring thought he had what it would take to become a Green Lantern. Now, the big question I ask then at this point as I'm looking into this is, when did Guy Gardner become the guy that we know today? the guy that was in the Bwahaha Justice League. He, you know, he's a big jerk. And what I discovered was that this version of Guy Gardner was presented in the comics sometime in the 80s. I couldn't quite nail down an exact time frame, but it happened sometime in the 80s. And it was, well, he was brought back by Steve Englehart and Joe Statton. And Englehart thought it would be a good idea to change up who Guy Gardner is. And he made him, quote, a jingoistic parody of the ultra-macho, red-blooded American male. And in fact, I have a quote here from Englehart that comes out of the September 2016 issue of Back Issue Magazine, which was published by Tomorrow's Publishing. And he says, it turned out to be the second biggest mistake of my entire career, because ever since... DC has claimed that since Joe and I didn't create the original Guy Gardner, our completely new take counts for nothing. If I had called the new guy Joe Smith, we would have earned major royalties. But as it is, we get nothing and we get dissed by the people we help. So adding it all up, I wish I hadn't done it. That I find that pretty interesting. Now, Guy Gardner's little moment there in Crisis on Infinite Earths, if you are interested, his story continues 
in Green Lantern number 195, which was released on September 19th, 1985. Thing to dwell on number two, who's the dude in the bug helmet? Okay, so I have officially at this point read this comic, this issue, at least three times because I've read the entire crisis twice before. But it seems like each time I read through this freaking massively epic crossover event, I run across people and characters and situations that I don't remember running across before. And I shake and scratch my head. And despite the fact that there are just a crap ton of characters in this book that I have no clue about, no idea who they are, I don't always look them all up. But every once in a while, some character will just pique my interest and that happened in this issue with the guy in the bug helmet. So on page 16 of the issue, panel number four, the heroes are all gathered around to go through the barrier. After Jay and Wally, they have the new cosmic treadmill that they've built. And they're showing this gathering of heroes. And in panel number four, they show who I assumed at the time and uh, found out that I'm correct is a version of the Doom Patrol. It's the Doom Patrol as of this point in time of the publishing history. And I recognized two of the characters, but the other three I didn't. Now, I'll say that two of those characters I didn't recognize, nothing about them piqued my interest. But this guy in the bug helmet, just, I had to know more about him. And I scoured the internet for about, I don't know, two and a half minutes, couldn't find anything, got really frustrated. And then thought, why am I working so hard? Because there's this guy who used to be one of the original members of the comic geek speak podcasting crew who knows quite a bit about Crisis on Infinite Earths and DC Comics in general. So I went out there on the internets, on the Twitters, and I asked him, who the frick is this guy? And so Peter Rios, the host of the Daily Rios, is what he's doing now when he's not still getting together once in a while with his boys from the CGS crew. He stepped up and he let me know who this guy is. His name is Mento. That's his superhero name, Mento. His real name is Steve Dayton, and he's actually Beast Boy's stepdad. His first appearance was in Doom Patrol number 91 on September 3rd, 1964, and he is the world's fifth richest man. That is an amazing fact, isn't it? So apparently, this guy, Steve Dayton, he wanted to impress Elastigirl or Rita Farr, who was on the Doom Patrol at the time. So he builds a helmet to enhance his mental abilities, and he chooses the name Mento for himself. And with what little research I did and with what little information I could find, he doesn't appear to spend a lot of time in the costume that we see him in in this issue. And, you know, maybe I was just looking in the wrong places, but I uh, I I don't like research and I get really tired and frustrated if what I'm looking for does not immediately jump off my screen when I do a Google search. But based on what I could find, Mento has a history of mental illness and spent most of his time not as a hero, but as a villain in the comics going up against the Teen Titans and Beast Boy and all that stuff. That uh, 
That's Mento, the man in the bug helmet. Thing to dwell on number one, the penguin versus Firestorm. All right. Again, sometimes when I read these issues, there is just so much going on in these issues. George Perez has so much going on in each panel that sometimes you really need to kind of sit there and just study them. And I think I, I, I spoke before in a previous episode about how when my son was a toddler and he came across my trade of Crisis on Infinite Earths, he would just sit on the floor and just stare at the pages. And it's because there's just so many colorful things happening all over these pages. Well, one little moment on page 21 caught my eye, and it's panel number five, and most of the panel is taken up in the foreground by Lady Quark fighting some weird-looking, big robot-looking guy with a clear dome over the top of his head so we can see his brain, and we don't see any eyeballs at all. He's freaking creepy-looking. And there's a few other heroes there in the foreground. They're, they're battling it out. But just directly behind them, near the top of the panel, is a little moment that, you know, if you blink, you're going to miss it. And it shows the penguin standing on what looks like an icy rooftop, firing something out of one of his umbrellas at Firestorm, who has created some kind of shield to block it. Now... This is the only instance of their battle that we see in this book. But the minute I noticed it, I just started laughing because the very idea of a character like the Penguin going up against somebody like Firestorm. I mean, all right, let's just go through each of these characters and talk about their superpowers. Okay, let's do that. Now, we'll start with Firestorm. And frankly, I'm just going to rattle off just a few of the things he can do. He has density control, energy absorption, energy projection, enhanced vision, flight, superhuman durability, superhuman strength, phasing, regeneration. That's just a few of Firestorm's powers. Now the penguin, let's see here. Uh, yeah, no superpowers whatsoever. He's a little roly-poly dude who has trick umbrellas that might have a sword in it or a gun, shoot bullets or shoot a flamethrower, you know, flames coming out the end of a freaking umbrella. And he is going up against Firestorm. I don't know how he got that gig. I don't know if it was just the luck of the draw, but good luck there, Oswald. That's his name, by the way, Oswald Cobblepot, which really... That alone just pretty much tells you all you need to know about the penguin. But I can't help thinking that if it has not yet been done at this point, I would love for someone to write a story, a one-shot comic. It can be a short eight-page thing. It doesn't matter. But a comic issue that focuses on these two characters and the battle that they had there that day in the ice and snow. You know, most of it can be what led up to that battle, how the penguin just managed to be in that spot when the battle broke out. And frankly, I'd like to have it be from the penguin's point of view, because I'm sure that dude is pooping his penguin pants 
right about now as this little battle is going on. I just, I saw that and I could not help but comment on it. And those were the top three things to dwell on. So now we come to the part of the show where I wrap it up and tell you all how I feel about the book in general. First, let's just look at the cover. If you had this issue just lying around or you had this cover, an image of this cover, maybe saved to your phone, and anybody in the world walked up to you and said, hey, uh, tell me a little about this George Perez guy. Does he, I don't know, does he put a lot of characters in his books? Does he do a lot of work? Does he spend a lot of time on the art? Just show them this cover. I, I'm not even prepared to count the number of villains that are on this cover because frankly, I don't recognize most of them because I think I've admitted it before. I'm not really much of a DC guy, but we've got the Cheetah, Dr. Savannah, Lex Luthor front and center, Deathstroke, Solomon Grundy, Sinestro, the Joker, Captain Cold, I recognize him, Poison Ivy, the Mirror Master. There's a guy with a D on his chest and the D reminds me of freaking Daredevil. That might be Per Degaton? I don't know. I know the name. I see Black Adam. I see the penguin. <laughs> the penguin's on the cover. In fact, once again, the penguin, who does not have superpowers, I cannot stress that enough. He has been drawn up near the top of the freaking cover, and I don't know if he's jumping off a cliff or what, but he has, he's doing the Mary Poppins here. He's gently gliding with his umbrella open above him like a like a parachute. It's ridiculous. And I'll be honest with you folks, I didn't notice that the first time I've looked at this, you know, when I when I've studied this cover, I never noticed that with the penguin. But looking at that and thinking about the scene we just talked about with the penguin going up against Firestorm, it makes me wonder if George Perez just doesn't think too highly of the penguin because based on this issue alone and the two appearances of the penguin that I'm aware of, he may show up like 19 other times in this book, but there's just so much freaking stuff going on. I didn't catch it. But based on these two appearances, Perez just puts him in ridiculous situations. And it makes me feel like Perez is saying, yeah, this is a ridiculous character. Oh, I see Eclipso. I see that Nazi guy. There are just a lot of villains on this cover. And again, I don't recognize many of them. Ooh, there's Simon all the way in the back. He's a dumb looking character. Have I mentioned that yet? But the, the cover is just amazing. I just, I, I have to imagine he spent a whole month just drawing this cover. I, I just don't understand how he could get stuff done on time because he put so much into his work when he was alive, just so much. And it's, uh, it's really a great loss to the comics community when he passed away. Beyond that, the event itself, after reading this issue, it just continues to surprise and excite me. It's just, again, it's so massive. There's so many characters. And many of the characters, again, I don't know. And yet, I'm still having a great big dump truck full of fun with this series. And honestly, I have to assume that the hardcore DC fans, the people that know who each and every one of these heroes and villains are, I just, I have to assume that they were in nerd heaven when they read this for the first time. But 
I really have no idea. I I don't know what the reaction was from the readers at the time. I think I really need to look into that because I'm I'm very curious. If you know, if you were reading the crisis at the time and you're not Peter Rios, if you're listening to this, Peter, we've already talked. All right. I'm not going to say any more about that, folks, but uh, that's a little tease in regard to what may come after we talk about the final issue. Just a little tease. Now, we have just a quarter of the event left to go. We're three quarters into this event. And even though I've read it twice before, I honestly do not remember what's next. And frankly, I I can't wait. Now, there's really nothing left uh, that I have to say about this issue uh, that hasn't already been said, that I haven't already said here in this episode. But before we go, I do want to address a couple of things real quick about the show. I'll, I'll try to be brief. As you know, if you've been listening as I have been releasing these episodes, this one's rather late. The last episode went up in April of 2022. And frankly, at the time that I'm recording this, I, I, I have no idea when this actually will go up. But I want to talk about that for just a moment and let you know that I found while I was really giving Event or Else a lot of thought, because I've been wanting to get back to this for a long time, I realized that the thing that's kind of slowing me down and hanging me up and uh, making it difficult for me to even want to move forward on new episodes is the whole YouTube side of it, the, the video show that I was trying to put together. That's what primarily this podcast was supposed to be. And it's why every episode up to this point sounds a certain way because the audio was ultimately recorded to go on a video. And I just released it as audio podcasts at the same time. But going forward, the the video show, there we're probably not going to see any more videos. I'm going to keep the channel up just in case. You never know. Next year, I may just have this sudden urge to just go in and do more videos to finish up the video series to this show. I don't know, but I do know that if I want to keep reading all of these events that I want to read and then talk about them, I'm going to have to skip the whole video side and just focus on the podcast itself. So that's what we're going to do. And one thing I can tell you is that this episode right here that you're listening to, I'm not going to release it until I have the final three episodes after this one, until they're done and they're ready to go. They're not just recorded, but all edited and in the can and ready to go. So if you're listening to this right now, you know that there will be a new episode next week and the week after that and the week after that. We're going to finish up Crisis on Infinite Earths if it kills me. With that said... Join me back here next week, and we're going to talk about Crisis on Infinite Earths number 10, Death at the Dawn of Time. And you know, after all this time, after waiting this long, from all the way back in April until I finally got this episode put out there, I mean, if you waited that long and you came back for this one, and then you don't join me for the rest of the event, well, I don't know. I just don't know what to think about that. Event or Else is a presentation of the Just Another Fanboy podcast. Questions and comments can be directed to eventorelse at gmail.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon, 
by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to get you and your fellow patrons episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate the show wherever available and share this podcast with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Take a drink. Take a drink, folks.